0: Is an Odyssey original.
1: Today's edition of KDEX In Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Clarence Thomas tries to brush it all off, but we'll go in depth into the major ethical issues all those fancy trips from a friend raises for the Supreme Court Justice.
2: And we're going to look into why so many legal marijuana farmers in California are giving up. Also, Gen Z is shying away from alcohol in
1: large numbers. We look into why. So what are they doing instead? That's a good question, and you're going to have to find out. But we start with Clarence Thomas and the report about all those luxury trips he took. Richard Painter was the chief White House ethics counsel under George W. Bush, now a law professor at the University of Minnesota. Richard, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Well, I know for a good number of years, there has been controversy surrounding the chief justice's wife, who, as you know, uh, has been uh, a favorite of various conservative uh, Republican causes. Uh, But this really paints an interesting picture of her husband, doesn't it?
3: Well, yes, Justice Justice Thomas, Uh, not the chief justice, but uh, Justice Thomas uh, has had conflicts of interest pertaining to his wife for a long time. She's been making a lot of money with uh, conservative groups, and uh, also she was involved with the effort to overturn the 2020 election. And there were some cases that he really should have recuse from. Uh, but now we have this additional problem of undisclosed uh, trips with this billionaire on his yacht and his plane. I mean, that clearly should have been disclosed uh, to. Uh, on the uh, disclosure form. So this is a, is a very serious matter. Uh, the disclosure form has an exception, of course, for um, personal. Uh, hospitality from a friend. You go to a friend's house for dinner and uh, perhaps for the weekend uh, at a house uh, up in the Pocono Mountains or something like that. Okay, but, but that's not what's happening here. These are trips with a billionaire on a yacht, on a private plane. Uh, this is travel. None. One of the exceptions never was. I mean, it should have been disclosed.
2: Uh, Mr. Painter, is there some have said there's a lack of leadership at the top at the Supreme Court. Chief Justice uh, John Roberts is apparently kind of like an absentee landlord, they say. And uh, should he be taking more uh, of a role here in in uh, handling situations like this? Because the Supreme Court has lost a lot of uh, 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 respect because of uh, things like this.
3: Well, uh, very much so, and I believe the other justices should be involved. Uh, They shouldn't just say which justice gets to decide these matters for himself uh, or herself. Uh, This is important, that the justices uh, should uh, own up to this problem with the court and work together to improve the reputation of the court and uh, deal with both financial conflicts of interest, other conflicts of interest, and cases and disclosure. And uh, Justice Thomas apparently says he talked to some of his colleagues, we don't know who, uh, but uh, this is something that should have been disclosed. It, it's very bad for the reputation of the court.
1: Okay, so uh, so Richard, what? what another, Richard, uh, rich what conflict? Of okay, but what happens now? Uh, if he thinks it's okay and he says apparently he thinks it was fine, uh, what is the mechanism for dealing with this? Can anybody deal with this?
3: Well, legally, uh, I mean, the court doesn't want to deal with it. Congress could. Uh, the House of Representatives could call uh, um, him in front of the House. Oh, um, Judiciary Committee, or the Senate, from the Senate Judiciary Committee, an egregious uh, conflict of interest, a violation of law, could result in impeachment of a justice, uh, or the justice being forced to resign. Uh, But I don't see that happening here. The Republicans and the House of Representatives are going to have no interest in pursuing this, Uh, and I'm not sure the Senate is going to have hearings. Uh, I remind everyone that in 1969, we had Justice Abe Fortas leave the court, because he had received money uh, from a man named Louis Wilson. Now, Louis Wilson did have some business that he was uh, before the court. He was trying to get review of his uh, criminal conviction for security fraud. The court denied that petition. Uh, Justice Borders didn't participate in that at all, but he was still told he had to resign from the court by the Chief Justice of the United States, Earl Warren, and members of Congress. Uh, he didn't get support from the Democrats, even though he's appointed by President Johnson. Uh, But that was a different time. I think there was more of a willingness to stand up against uh, even the appearance of impropriety uh, in the court. Then, of course, it went through Nixon and the the Republicans in the Senate finally being willing to tell him to resign. Uh, But in this partisan environment we have today, um, everyone may just retreat to their own uh, political corner based on their party affiliation. And uh, take a stand on this uh, solely based on politics, which is not the way it should be.
2: All right. Thanks so much. Uh, That is
1: Richard Painter, Chief uh, White House Ethics Counsel under George W. Bush. Right now, though, uh, Republicans in the Tennessee state legislature, they voted to expel two Democratic representatives. Why? Because they took part in a gun control protest at the Capitol. A third Democrat narrowly escaped expulsion. We're hoping to talk with uh, Tennessee Democratic State Senator Heidi Campbell. She represents the area in uh, Nashville where the recent mass shooting took place that killed six people at a private Christian school. Do we have the state senator with us? We do. Uh, How are you?
4: Hi there. Good to be with you today.
1: So this is a very unusual situation. And as I understand it, something like this has not happened in your state in quite some time. Am I right?
4: Uh, That's correct. It's only happened three times. One was right after the Civil War because there were four representatives who uh, refused to acknowledge that um, slavery was illegal. And another time when there was a representative who had been uh, found guilty of 23 counts of sexual assault.
2: So some have seen a racial component here because the two who were... uh... Expelled were uh, black, and the one who was not expelled was white. Uh, from the th- other side, they say part of that was due to the fact that the uh, black lawmakers used bullhorns in the chamber, which apparently was the, uh, was the straw that broke the camel's back while the, uh, the white woman did not. Uh, what do you make of that uh, uh, explanation?
4: I think both of those things are true. I mean, there's irrefutably a a racial component to all of this. Um, We know that because of the questions that were being asked of um, our two fierce black leaders who um, the performance they gave is for the history books. I mean, it was absolutely amazing um, how they handed their tales back to them when they were being interrogated by these Republicans.
1: So what happens now?
4: Uh, Well, now, probably those two, first of all, obviously, Gloria, um, the one woman, she is um, still in the House, and then the other two are going to be reinstated by their councils, their city councils, and they're going to come back stronger. So this was, I think, a a real tactical error on the part of the Republicans. Not only did they give national platform, a national platform to the the three, the Tennessee three, they're being called um, to the Tennessee three for um, almost six hours. But on top of that, um, it's going to backfire on them.
2: Why expulsion, though? Uh, Weren't there other possible uh, punishments? I mean, fines, whatever. Why why did they go to this length, do you think? Is there a deeper Uh, issue here?
4: Sure. Yeah. And I mean, this really points to the deeper issue here, which is that we really are living in a totalitarian totalitarian state here in Tennessee, where you have a very strong supermajority. And by that, I mean, I'm a senator and there are six Democrats out of 33. So it really is a supermajority. And they kind of feel like they can do whatever they want to do. So if there is an offense taken, they feel like they have the right to to expel these individuals and take away representation from 210,000 when you add them up cumul- cumulatively, Tennesseans who elected them to be represented in, in in the House.
1: And I guess it should be noted that in the meantime, uh, nothing really is being accomplished with gun control.
4: Right. And that's the that's really what's and, you know, all three of these people, when they were defending themselves, pointed that out, that the that the reason behind all of this is because Tennesseans have made it very clear and, and from their districts as well, it, it polls at over 80% across the state that they want some common sense gun reform. And now that, you know, this mass shooting has happened in our city. Um, it's, it's something that people are actually showing up to the Capitol and protesting thousands of mostly children, um, teenagers, mostly coming to the Capitol and just screaming and shouting and chanting throughout this peacefully, um, and I think that um, I think they wanted to to point out that um, that those people weren't being heard.
2: All right, thank you so much for joining
1: us today, Tennessee Democratic State Senator Heidi Campbell. Coming up, are drug cartels better at the pot business? We're looking to why so many legal marijuana farms are struggling to compete.
2: Right now, though, if you uh, fly a lot and you're noticing a lot more bumpy flights, uh, you might want to blame climate change. Researchers say something called clear air turbulence is becoming more frequent. Paul Williams is a professor of atmospheric science at the University of Reading in England. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: It's my pleasure. Good to talk to you.
2: So uh, why climate change and why is clear air turbulence something that uh, is just uh, kind of an issue with uh, pilots not being able to know they're flying into this.
0: Yeah, well, the clue's in the name, really. We call it clear air turbulence precisely because it's invisible. Um, So often the first time the pilots know that there's any clear air turbulence there is when they're actually flying right in the middle of it. Um, So it tends to have the potential to cause injuries because um, the plane will be flying through clear blue skies. Seatbelt sign will be turned off. This doesn't show up on the radar in the in the in on the flight deck. Um, So it does tend to cause injuries. And in fact, we know that about 5000 aircraft every year in the US encounter turbulence. This is any form of turbulence that is strong enough to lift you up out of your seat if you're not seat belted. And this does cause hundreds of injuries and hundreds of thousands of sorry, hundreds of millions of dollars in terms of economic cost.
1: And is there evidence that this is increasing and why?
0: There is. And it might seem hard to believe. It might seem incredible. But we do have evidence now, a lot of evidence that climate change is the reason. Um, I've been studying air turbulence for the past 20 years uh, since my Ph.D. in atmospheric physics. And what we found in that time is that the jet stream is changing because of climate change. And it's the jet stream that generates this clear air turbulence. There's something in the jet stream called wind shear. And we know from satellite measurements that that has got stronger by 15% since satellites first began measuring it in the 1970s. And we might see a further 30% increase by the end of this century. And so we've been crunching the numbers on what this means for clear air turbulence. And what we find is that we are likely to see two to three times as much severe turbulence um, in the coming decades uh, by maybe the 2050s. So to uh,
2: tackle this problem, do airline travelers just need to be more aware that, hey, uh, you better stay seat belted in your seat because you could hit your head pretty hard on the ceiling of the aircraft? Or is there something else that uh, the airliners need to do? Do they need to change how high up they go? And isn't that going to affect uh, how much fuel they use?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I've been I've been wondering the same thing myself. And so we've looked into it. And unfortunately, changing altitude is not going to help here. We see the same increases, whether it's thirty thousand feet or forty thousand feet. So it's gonna be up to well, I think we need to push forward on, on a two on a few different fronts. Uh, certainly better compliance with seatbelt wearing policies from passengers would help. Um uh, we we know that um, if you're seat belted, that's virtually a guarantee of safety. The only thing that can can harm you is if the overhead luggage bins pop open and and a, a suitcase or whatever it falls out and, and hits you on the head. But that's very unlikely. Um, another thing we could push forward on is the quality of the clear air turbulence forecasts. Um, so pilots use these forecasts just like regular weather forecasts, but they're forecasting the strength of the turbulence um twenty years ago they were about sixty percent accurate. Today they're much better, around eighty five percent, but there's still more we could do there. I you know, I'm devoting my career to making these forecasts as accurate as possible. I'd like to see no passenger ever injured by turbulence again. That's that's the dream.
1: So is the bottom line though for passengers who are concerned about all this, that so long as they keep seat belted during at least most of the flight Even if there are more instances and more severe cases of turbulence, they don't really have anything to be alarmed about. Is that right?
0: I think so. I'm not concerned that certain parts of airspace will become unnavigable because of this. I'm not suggesting we'll have to avoid flying over certain parts of the world. I mean, severe turbulence is rare. Only about a tenth of a percent of the atmosphere has severe turbulence in it. And even if it were to double or treble, that's still only a few tenths of a percent. So your individual chance, if you're heading to LAX and you're about to get on a flight, your individual chance of encountering severe turbulence is small. But of course, given the number of planes in the skies, sooner or later, one of them will hit it. And yeah, just do what the pilots do. Always keep your seatbelt fastened. Uh, That's certainly what I do whenever I'm seated. And and that's really the recommendation for, for everyone.
2: All right, thanks so much. That is uh, Paul Williams, Professor of atmospheric Science at the University of Reading in England. You're listening to
1: KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman.
2: Legal marijuana farms in California are struggling to get by. New state data shows California lost almost 1,800
1: cultivation licenses since the beginning of last year. So here to tell us what's happening on the legal side of things is Johnny Caselli who is owner of Huckleberry Hill Farms in Holbolt County. He is a second-generation cannabis cultivator. Johnny, thanks for being with us.
5: Yeah, thank you guys both so much for having me on.
1: So what happened? There was a time not that many years ago when a lot of people in California thought that if not a cash cow, this would be a cash leaf, at least. Uh, it's not working out that way. Why?
5: You know, I, I think uh, what's happening in California right now is uh, California really saw the, the money signs flashing and um, reached out to capture that and become the, the Napa Valley of weed, per se. And um, they never really put a cap on licenses. So um, as they continue to permit farms, you know, sooner or later, without federal legalization, California is just oversaturated with weed.
2: So, some oversaturation, yes, but uh, was the legal cannabis industry hobbled at the beginning uh, when there were issues with the uh, banking and finance?
5: Yeah, you know, those are still some of the challenges that most of us are facing now. With you know the the excess fees of banking, and the overtaxation, you know, there's a there's a, a list a mile long that things that we can do better. And and I think you know, to California's. Um, credit. They, They are starting to slowly address it. But, you know, as fast as they're addressing these issues, more farms are dropping out faster than that.
1: Is it the case, Johnny, that the illegal business side of this perhaps is running more efficiently?
5: You know, the 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 legal side of this is always run more efficiently and, and it operated the way we wanted it to operate. And, um, you know, I think California wants us to believe that it's the um, illegal grows, the cartel grows that are really affecting the marketplace net right now. But it's really the lack of retail shops in California, the lack of access that consumers have to good, clean cannabis. Um, In the overtaxation, there's no way around it. And the oversupply is just the explanation point on on the downturn of this marketplace.
2: You mentioned cartel grows. Is there a possibility here that some of the problem might also be crime itself and that some of these illegal growers might be connected to organized crime and they're kind of helping kind of push some legal growers out of business?
5: You know there there's not there's in my opinion, there's no illegal growers that are selling it on the white market or, and and they' they're not our real competition. you know our real competition is is all the different regulations that California has put on us, and um you know we're we're trying to weather the storm, but a lot of us are really at the brink of extinction, and it's really sad to see that happening to all these family farms, at least in the emerald triangle
1: so what needs to be done?
5: We need, uh, in my opinion, I think uh, I think California needs to cap uh, and, and not permit any more farms until federal legalization comes. I think we need to, you know, lessen the the, the taxes that are put on the consumer. We need to open more retail shops in California. Um, and we really need to really have access. Farmers need access direct to con- consumer because in between me and the consumer, is a distributor that gets 17%. It's a retail shop that, you know, doubles that. And then there's 38% tax put on top of that. So at the end of the day, when I, when I'm selling my my product for five or $10 for a quarter, you know, the consumer's paying $55 and, and, and the farmer's really ultimately not getting that. And what all we really want is uh, Emerald Triangle, small sun-grown farmers is to really share our our life's work with the consumer and really find the best possible medicine that makes them feel the best. And that's all we really want.
2: All right. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. Johnny Casali, owner of Huckleberry Hill Farms in Humboldt County. You
1: know, older people always seem to look at the teenage and college age generation. And they think they're a bunch of kids and young adults who play around and party too much. But some recent studies don't back that up when it comes to Gen
2: Z. And we're going to dig into that now with Dr. Gary Metrolivus. Uh Oh, my God. M- M- Tre- you know what? You're on the line. How uh, Can you pronounce your name for me?
6: Sure, you're close. It's Mitch Revolos.
2: I knew I was getting there, but I didn't know how long it was going to take. Uh, medical director at the American Addiction Center's Laguna Treatment Hospital in Aliso Viejo. Also, Lauren Olson, uh, she's 22, works in Colorado as a loved one peer coach at Face It Together. That is an addiction wellness nonprofit organization. So, uh, Doctor, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what kind of figures are you seeing as far as uh, Gen Z drinking less and, and, and kind of partying less than the generation before?
6: Yeah, I would say um, there's been numerous um, recent studies coming out, but it it looks like the general consensus at this point is that the overall trend um, looks like it's probably about 20% less drinking um, of of Gen Zs, and that's um, in comparison to the millennials. Um, And that's pretty kind of consistent across the board.
1: Do we know why, or do we think we know why?
6: Yeah, you know, I, I think it's kind of like, it looks like there's multiple reasons. Um, You know, one thing I want to say is any addiction is a hit of dopamine, right? You know, you have a drink, that's a hit of dopamine, whatever substance, it's a hit of dopamine. Um, And that's based on survival, right? We we have dopamine in in our systems for survival. If we have something to drink like water when we're thirsty or something to eat, that's a little hit of dopamine. And that encourages you to say, go on, do more. Great job. Whereas any substances or or alcohol that causes the dopamine hit to go even higher, which strongly reinforces it. Now, I think what's going on, um, one of the reasons though, but I think amongst the younger generations is that um, there are other ways or other things to be addicted to. Um, There's social media, social platforms, um, there's like TikTok, there's Instagram. You post something, you get a lot of likes, that's a hit of dopamine. And, and, and that's kind of shifted a little bit of the addiction in that direction. But there's also increased prevalence of cannabis use as well that we're seeing. And so we're seeing more and more Gen Zers kind of partaking into that uh, cannabis culture, you know, with the increased legalization and everything. Plus, um, I wanted to say that even amongst the Gen Zers, um, it, it seems as though they're more of a stay-in type of culture. So it's kind of like the Netflix and chill. They just rather stay in, watch some movies, stream some TV shows, order in using like different apps. And uh, part of that kind of goes with the cannabis culture, kind of just stay home, chill, and, um, you know, use cannabis instead. Okay. Well- um
2: well, mm-hmm. let's get, uh, let's get Lauren, uh, Lauren Olson is with us. Let's get uh, her perspective on this. Uh, is, does that hold true uh, for you? Is it, uh, or is it also more the fact that uh, maybe uh, Gen Z is uh, perhaps paid more attention to uh, their health?
7: Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with some things that uh, Dr. said. I, I definitely see where the socialization aspect of, of staying in has become a little bit more prevalent with, with my generation. Uh, but for me, in my perspective, um, just personally, a little bit about me, um, I lost my father a few years back to an alcohol addiction. And um, that is something that has um, affected my family for the past few generations. And for myself, I I am someone that doesn't drink very often at all, just because I'm um, consistently aware of, how it's negatively impacted my family. And I know that it's, um, you know, addiction is something that runs in my blood. And so I I tend to stay away from it altogether just because for the big reason for me is I don't want to um, continue generational trauma that has affected myself and, and my family for however many years. Uh, and I feel like that's also something that we're seeing a lot. Um, in general with uh, the younger generation, my generation, is that uh, folks are a little bit more open to um, discussing uh, underlying mental health issues in general. And um, mental health and mental health awareness and addiction awareness are becoming a lot less stigmatized um, than they were in the generations before. And, And along with that has come sort of the resources to match that. So I feel as though um, it's kind of a combination of a lot of things, but I definitely do agree with um, a lot of what the doctor said as well.
1: Doctor, I'm curious. Uh, a lot of the uh, Gen Z uh, people came of sort of drinking age during the pandemic, uh, which is why they're, they're perhaps more used to being at home. Uh, so I wonder if some of these surveys are suspect. I wonder if we're getting honest answers. And what I'm getting at is I wonder if a lot of This generation is sitting at home and drinking quietly themselves, and then there's no other way to put this. And then when they're surveyed, lie about it.
6: Yeah, that's that's a good point. But even um, just in general, the people that I'm taking care of and and that I'm seeing, I'm seeing alcohol use far more prevalent in in the older generation. So I think that these surveys are actually onto something, and um, I, I do feel as though there has been. Um, reduced consumption amongst that generation.
2: All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's Dr. Gary Mitrevalos, uh with the American Addiction Center's Laguna Treatment Facility. Also, Lauren Olson, 22 years old, works in Colorado as a loved one peer coach. Well, that's it for KNX In-Depth. Today, we'll do another one Monday.